This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled conversation about The Mandalorian Chapter 21, The Pirate. This is Slash Home Editorial Director Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Home Editor... Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Star Wars expert, Brian Young. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, before we get into this week's uh, discussion, let's start with feedback, which I'm going to start off uh, with the, the weekly Peter Got Something Wrong uh, <laughs> admission. Last week, I said that Carl Weathers made his Mandalorian directorial debut with last week's episode, Chapter 20, but uh, he previously directed an episode of Season 2, so I don't know why I said that, because I... I knew that, and I looked at the IMDb while I was doing the research for the episode. I think I was just uh, going crazy. So I apologize. Uh, he, he has directed two episodes of Mandalorian. Uh, we got some emails. Let's read the emails. Okay, first one is more of a Star Wars-specific uh, email. It's from Manuel. He writes in, One thing that always bothered me with Star Wars, movies and TV shows alike, our planets always seem to be one city basically in the case of navarro about 30 people but fans never seem to be bothered by this so he wanted to hear hear our thoughts on that brian do you, i'm sure you have some thoughts on uh the city-like nature of the planets in star wars i i think this is something that's really part and parcel what george lucas was doing um just with the motifs and and things he was working with originally but you'll notice that like Tatooine has a whole bunch of cities now. You just have a hard time telling them apart. Or Coruscant is just one entirely big city or whatever. Like I think Star Wars is not trying for any sort of realism or accuracy as far as the science or the biomes of planets are, are, are concerned, which is why you get a planet that's entirely a forest or a planet that's entirely a ball of snow. None of it makes any sense actually, but that's just the way star Wars works because it's a visual shorthand for what's going on. So that's what you get with star Wars. You know, I know this wasn't the question, but since you brought it up, Brian, I wanted to ask you, are there planets in star Wars that have multiple environments like different types of environments or well i mean going back to tatooine right like there's sand and there's rocks that's two different sort of <laughs> but is there a planet that has like a rainforest and also a desert i don't think so i think the closest we might come to is like naboo or kashik where they have like 
ocean and forest or like uh, underwater cities and surface cities. You know what I mean? I think that's about as diverse as the as the cultures in Star Wars planets get. Uh, you know, Coruscant, the, the closest we get to like anything different than a city is just the top of that mountain in Monument Plaza. <laughs> Brad, do you have any thoughts on the one city Star Wars planets? Uh, I mean, I think the city thing is probably a little less irksome than the the you know environment uh, thing because, <laughs> like, of course, like we're we're only ever going to see a small part of a given planet. You know, I mean, it's we can't visit all the different places on a planet. We know how big a planet is because we know how big Earth is. So you know, it's fine if we only go to certain locations. But you know, and like Brian said too, we're starting to see other cities on on Tatooine, even though they look similar. But like. The weirder thing is definitely having planets just represented by one entire, you know, environment, like Hoth being snow and Dagobah being a swamp and all that jazz. The other thing that's interesting, I, I saw someone on my Twitter timeline, uh, they were visiting uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, and they said, I'm back in, in Batuu. And I was like, that's a weird thing to say. Like, I would never say I'm back in Earth. I'm I'm back in Tatooine. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably just because... Like, I know. <laughs> yeah, you, it, Batu feels like a place you know that you go to because it's in Disneyland rather than being you know the planet you're on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, uh, this other question uh, came to us from two separate people had the same theory: Cade in Iowa and Aaron in Lancashire, UK. They all they both had the same thought. I'm going to read Aaron's email because it's um more concise i think says a big fan of the spoiler discussions i listen to every one of them much to my children's chagrin uh i just had a thought with regards to grogu's escape from coruscant brian wrote up this great theory about jar jar binks i love this theory however i did have another thought a key part of brian's theory was that jar jar and padme are the only two people that we've come across from naboo with the means to help in this way and that they were on Coruscant at the time Padme was discounted for some good reasons, but there is another could if he says captain Typho. No, no, he, he's not okay. saying that. This one okay. might even be more ridiculous, Brian. So hold on. okay. Could Sheev Palpatine, former Naboo Senator be behind the escape. It's feasible to me that most of the Jedi would not be aware that Palpatine's betrayal or, that he was behind Order 66, it's conceivable that Keller and Beck might have reached out to him for help and seeing the opportunity to ensnare some of uh, this Jedi, Palpatine's offers him the ship. Will we see in the next flashback that Beck has been betrayed by the person he thought was helping him? This would also put Grogu in the Empire's hands very early. It would explain how when we meet him in the first steps of the Mandalorian, the Empire are aware of his existence and are actively hunting him. It would stand to reason that the Empire had possession of him before he was either stolen or escaped, hence why they enlisted Din to get him back. So this is an interesting theory that did not even come into my mind. Brian, what do you think? So I think there's there's two things at play here. One, I would say never say never. Um, if they want to sort of retcon or twist themselves into a pretzel to make this the case i'm sure they can but there's two major factors that i think make it too much of a stretch one is that the jedi council and the jedi in general were very wary of 
the chancellor and that was the mission mace windu and the rest of the council had gone on to go like arrest him so why keller and beck would be like hey i know mace windu was on his way to arrest you um uh you know but (laughs) help me the other thing is that you'll notice that palpatine after the uh after he ascends to the chancellorship no longer has Naboo guards or any of that stuff around him. It's always the Imperial Royal guards or clones that are sort of, or, or stormtroopers even are around him or the Senate uh, guards, the blue, the blue robed Senate guards. So the visual cues that we have from star Wars, like I think they're really smart in how they use visual language and costumes and things to tell stories of cultures that if we were meant to believe that it was possibly Palpatine, I think they would have used the blue Senate guards and we would have been led easier down that path. The other one I was thinking as I was thinking about it was Captain Typho because Captain Typho would have access to all of those things. Um, But he felt very much in the dark about everything the same way Padme was and hadn't learned anything else um, based in revenge of the Sith. So I, I, discarded him as well so i think they could twist the knots around to make palpatine work but i still think jar jar is our best bet hmm. i i feel like if it's jar jar we're not gonna find that out it's not gonna be revealed and i feel like also if it was typho we wouldn't like it, that's not interesting enough palpatine's interesting but brad is it too ridiculous i mean it's it's maybe not ridiculous if you think about the fact that like there's probably a part of this that is like set, setting up the whole concept of cloning and things like that for, for Palpatine to come back in the sequel trilogy. So like if they're, you know, t- using Pershing to, you know, deal with clone development by the empire and things like that, you know, it could stand to reason that Palpatine maybe saw a benefit in using somebody like, you know, Grogu or something like that, because he knew like what he could do with, you know, a a species and uh, a youngling who maybe, you know, had promise of being a powerful Jedi. So yeah, it's, it's, I think it's probably not likely, but certainly not impossible. Yeah. I I wouldn't be mad at it. Although (laughs) are we under the agreement that we're going to see more of this flashback and we're going to see more of, what happened to Grogu before he met Mando? I think it's certainly possible. Well, of if, course it's possible. Brian always says like anything's possible. They could, but like well, Brian, what do, what do you think? Like, do you think it's going to happen? I think if John Favreau is really talking about taking the show indefinitely, and he just sent Jar Jar or the the actor behind Jar Jar on an adventure with Grogu, it's very possible <laughs> that. Well, no, I mean like yeah. All he did was take him to hyperspace here. And is Grogu, we've got three more episodes of this season. I don't see them going back to that storyline this season. But then again, I didn't see them going there in the first place. But if they just dole out little pieces of that adventure over the next, you know, few seasons or chapters or whatever, they could milk that as long as they wanted to. I mean, they showed us literally like 12 minutes of their partnership. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let's go into our brief thoughts on this episode, The Pirate. Brad, let's start with you. What, what were your thoughts on this episode? I thought it was a pretty solid episode. Some some good Star Wars action, uh, some nice pirate battling. 
Uh, I like that they actually made the 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 pirate ship similar to that of a pirate ship with the uh, the gunner stations kind of being like cannons on on actual pirate ships. Uh, you know, the siege on Navarro was was pretty cool. Seeing the Mandalorians come together. Uh, and there was a, a couple, you know, unexpected moments that I didn't see, you know, actually happening that came about here. So, uh, yeah, overall, I think a, a pretty good episode of The Mandalorian, although I will say I um, and it, this is necessarily a detriment to the series, but like it it feels a little bit odd that for a show um, that was set up to be squarely focused on Din Djarin, that this season more so seems to be about. Uh, the Mandalorians at large and the redemption arc of Bo-Katan. And it kind of feels like this is becoming less the Mandalorian and more uh, here's a general Star Wars sequel series that we have, you know, stealthily introduced by way of a show that is ca- still called the Mandalorian. <laughs> they, but, they could just add an S to the title, though. But I would even argue... Easy, that, like... James Cameron, easy. <laughs> <laughs> I would even argue, you know, every episode of this podcast, I asked Brian about the title of the chapter, and I would even argue that the title of this series, The Mandalorian, could be about the Mandalorian people and not just about this one Mandalorian. Like, it, it could have multiple meanings, just like the chapters. No, no, I've, I've I've thought about that, too, and, like, it's that, that's a fine excuse, but it still doesn't change the fact that it feels like Din Djarin is starting to be a little overshadowed as a character by, you know, the the larger world that he's in. Yeah, it also seems like a a little weird that that it's almost like he's becoming a side character. Not that like like he's not leading the charge. There's other people leading the charge. Yeah, I I, I do see that. Brian, what what are your thoughts on this episode? I thought this episode was absurdly silly in in some of my favorite ways. It it balanced that that Flash Gordonness. I don't think we've had such a Flash Gordon silly old serial episode like this in quite a while and it's so it it nourished that part of me but it didn't outweigh the gravitas of the episode and like the important things that happened um and and yeah like the action was just really cool um and we learned more and we advanced the story and there were <laughs> really cool things that i'm sure we're going to talk about over the course of this uh podcast yeah yeah, uh, you know what? I, I, my issue with this season so far is that it's been it's been kind of directionless. Like when we started off this season, it, it almost seemed like they painted themselves in such a corner with the season two finale of Mandalorian, with Gorgu going off with Luke Skywalker, that it was almost like they had to reboot this series. And with the first couple episodes. You still didn't know, like, usually in a movie you have, like, you know, or even TV show, you have the inciting incident that kind of, like, lays the the path of, like, this is the struggle, this is what the hero needs to get to, and at the end of the, you know, the season or this movie, this is the, the battle that's, you know, he's going to have to overcome these obstacles, and he's going to have to have this confrontation with this person to accomplish this thing that was set up at the beginning. And I feel like this season The Mandalorian has been kind of, directionless and in, in establishing exactly what those things are other than we've had vague things of like i guess maybe reuniting the mandalore but it didn't really like seem i don't know it, it just it, so i guess that's my one criticism on the writing of this season like we could have had this uh moff gideon thing happen kind of 
even though it was spoken about in previous episodes of the possibility that he had escaped or whatever, like maybe set that up earlier. Maybe, I don't know. I, I don't know how you'd fix it, but I, I guess that's my problem. It's also my problem with like the current, you know, uh, three phases of the MCU is we kind of know where it's going to end up, but we don't, it, it kind of seems to be lacking a, a, a an obvious well, direction. But I think that's actually one of the interesting things about Carson Tava in this episode, because he's going like, these things are all connected. And and, and Tim Meadows is like, meh. And I think that there's like, I think we're supposed to be Carson Tava, the, the yeah. super fans going, all this stuff's connected. And then, and it is going to come and, and join all those things together, which makes Carson Tava like a really good audience stand in for us because we see how all this stuff is connecting. Um, but the new Republic is, is reticent to believe it. <laughs> yeah. That, that was what I was actually leading up to. And I, I forgot my point of that whole thing. So thank you, uh, <laughs> Brian. But my point was this episode, the threads kind of feel like they're actually finally coming together and we're kind of seeing the grand plan that was being laid out, but it really felt like they, it took five episodes to get here, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it. I thought the visuals in this episode were, uh, some of the best of the season and i would probably i don't know i almost want to credit that to director peter ramsey who um you know probably best known as one of the directors of uh, uh into the spider-verse uh but he started as a storyboard artist uh on nightmare on elm street dream child he he's worked as a storyboard artist for 20 years on some huge movies and uh, he eventually made his way into animation as a director of Rise of the Garden Guardians at DreamWorks. And he uh, recently also did Lost Dolly on Netflix. But this is his live action uh, directorial debut, I think, unless someone emails me and proves me wrong. <laughs> I have to apologize next week. Uh, so, so I wanted to ask you guys, thoughts on, on Ramsey as a director here? Seems well, like I've he did some no solid work. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I mean, you know, if we're going to go back, um, if we're going to go back to the Bryce Dallas Howard debate, you know, like it seems like there were some really great people <laughs> on his crew, too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Listen, I'm, I'm not credit. I'm just saying, like, it, it seemed to me that there was like some fantastic visuals in this episode more so than like the the re- more than the rest of the season and i'm wondering if i guess it's a question i'm not i'm not trying to cr- credit him because there's a, a fantastic crew backing up i'm I, i'm just kidding that it was yeah. it, it's whenever we have these conversations and it's a dude yeah. not not us specifically but other places <laughs> when it's a dude it's always just yeah. like yeah he did great but when it's bryce dallas howard everybody's like yeah. but look at the team she had behind i him. know like, i know i know i i was um I think the story gave him the visuals, though, right? Like having Mandalorians drop out of that ship and land down in the battle with pirates. You know, there hasn't been um, stuff like that much yet where they're fighting on Moss. We had like the episode with the 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 pterosaur where they fought that and that had some of the, those elements but not at this scale so i think the scale of the story is what lent itself to give him the opportunity to have some of those the coolest visuals we've seen this season yeah but i'd bring it back to the one moment that brad brought up like the the, the people going into the gunner seats on that that pirate ship that could have just been guns 
poking out of the ship and then firing. Do you know what I mean? Like, but you didn't I mean, have to have them running to the thing and getting into those pods. And like, and again, I don't think Peter Ramsey designed like you know, it's one, no, one of the art crew that designed those pods and stuff like that. But it was so cool. Yeah, no, it was it was cool. I loved how much they leaned into the pirate stuff, down to the Mister Smee Ugnot and the jaunty pirate treatment of the the main theme. For sure. Uh, I also forgot to say, if you haven't, if you have some feedback for us, or you have a theory, you have uh, something we, you want us to read on the podcast, and send it to us at Peter at Tashlam.com. I forgot to say that after our feedback feedback section, but uh, let's. Let's get into actually before we get into the main episode, we're, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, let's get into our breakdown. Uh, oh, I, I actually before we get into the breakdown, I should also mention that this episode has two directors of photography, which is unusual. David Klein, who's worked on a lot of uh, Mandalorian episodes, and then Paul Hugin, who has worked on Book of Boba Fett and Obi Wan Kenobi. I don't know the reasoning for that. I'm guessing. Klein had to like had something going on and they needed someone to come in but that's just speculation on my part but I, I thought it was worth noting because you don't usually see two directors of photography uh so anyways okay so this is one of those previously ons that kind of spoils some of what happens in the episode like when I when I watched the previously on I was like oh okay so we're either going to see Moff Gideon or learn about his escape in this episode, and uh, the pirate situation is going to come to a head. And uh, both of those were true. So, yeah, but I've been telling you that since episode one, though. <laughs> yes. Uh, but um, okay, so we begin on Navarro, where they are sure to show this establishing shot of the IG 11 statue in the square, and it's still missing all the droid pieces that Mando had removed and recovered. Um, so I wanted to ask you guys, do you think we're, we're going to come back to this? Is, is IG-11 re- rising from the dead still a possibility? Yeah, I mean, he's still got the parts, and I'm sure that, you know, at some point maybe he'll encounter the what he needs to maybe try to make it work. But, you know, will we see him come back before the end of the season? Uh, maybe, because maybe they can use him in order, like uh, to reclaim Mandalore or in their fight against the Empire, but you know, I'm not. I, I don't know. I don't know. So one thing I've been thinking about, as far as this goes, too, with with John Favreau feeling very confident, he can just he has carte blanche to just kind of do this series until he gets tired of it. You, you'll notice in long runs of comic book series, right? Like if you go back and and read like Walt Simonson's run on Thor, there is stuff that that he plants seeds for 40, 20, 30, 40 issues before it actually pays off. And so if John Favreau is feeling comfortable that he can do this show from now until doomsday, he could very well just be planting seeds for stuff. He might not need to pull out of the ground for, for two, three, four, five seasons. I don't know. It kind of seems like a setup that's meant for this season to pay off later in the season. But I I don't know. Maybe I could be wrong. There's definitely been some stuff that they've set up in season one that didn't pay off until season two. So, yeah, it's it's anybody's guess. Yeah. Which is actually something I appreciate about the storytelling, right? Where we could say like, oh, that didn't wrap up. We'll probably get something in the next season. And to leave some of those questions out there is not the worst thing. Yeah. I will say that establishing shot of showing 
the half statue in the middle of the square to me is kind of like not just like oh it's cool imagery but to me reads as like oh this is you know something that should also you know remember that thing that might come back later do you know what i mean it seems like good storytelling and not just cool imagery to me but i i could be wrong so, I, so we're gonna say I, I could be wrong too <laughs> i could be wrong too i just yeah Okay, uh, so High Magistrate Grief Karga is busy doing some of the city planning when Pirate King Gorian Shard's ship enters the city's airspace. And um, Grief noticed that the Corsair looked familiar. The Corsair, yeah. Corsair? What is a Corsair? So the, it's just a, a kind of ship. Corsairs are it's it's pirating terms too, right? Like, um, they would call very fast ships corsairs and things like that. Um, a corsair is also another name for a pirate ship. Um, this dates back to like the the 16th century. Yeah, a pirate yeah. corsair is just a thing. And I looked this up on Wikipedia, and the first time it was mentioned in Star Wars was in 1995 book Tales from the Moss Eisley Cantina. So it's been something in Star Wars lore for some time. Uh, Shard is upset about his pirate crew being gunned down on Navarro, but Karga says it was his pirate uh, uh, crew's fault because they shot first. Did everyone else's eyes roll and? when the slide was spoken no i liked it you did yeah i didn't what what about it would be eye rolling it seems like it's a reference to the whole you know, yeah of course it is that's, or... that's what makes it fun i guess i didn't even think about that until you said that oh like, really? okay yeah that was the first it, thing i so thought of <laughs> i i have tried really hard to stay out of the whole han shot first debate because like i don't care and i don't think it changes the story point so I, it's just never the first thing I think about. Oh, I, I don't care about who shot first. Like that whole debate is just stupid to me. Like it's just people mad about what was changed in the in the special editions. Uh, not not to uh, not to put down anybody out there that really gets has a feeling about that. But like I don't, I just don't think. Like Brian says, I don't think it changes the story in any way. I think what I'm saying here, Brian, is it felt like just like oh, let's throw in a reference, just to throw in a reference. Kind of. I thing. mean, I don't know. I don't think so because like I I feel like that like, he was gonna say something to that effect anyway, and so kind of saying it like that and making it that like an, an amusing you know nod for those who who know, then I think is is perfectly fine. Fair enough. It's similar, similar to the uh, uh, to Doctor Pershing saying it's a trap to Amon Calamari in the, uh, a couple episodes ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So with Moff Gideon gone and Navarro being an independent world, they lack protection, and Shard won't fall for Cargo's bluffs. Uh, Shard's ship takes aim on the city, and survivors flee the city. But many are meeting their end in this sequence, and then we cut to. Uh, the chapter title for chapter 21, it is The Pirate. And Brian, every, every episode I, I ask you to impress us with a possible double meaning of, of a title, but this time uh, I'm, I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. I don't think you're going to impress us this time. I mean, don't you think that Grief Karg is something of a pirate? <sighs> he was. 
Not and that's the reputation. Or... That's the reputation that the pirates are dealing with him now. So they're treating him like he is a pirate, also still. And I guess maybe they did raid Moff Gideon for the pirates. I, I I don't think they. I don't think there's anything here, Brian. I don't think there's a whole lot either. But I did. I did get the idea that that there was a possibility. Um, yeah. <laughs> that that. Grief Karga could have been mentioned in that. For sure. Okay, so a, a Y-Wing lands on the sandy beach. Uh, it's a, a New Republic outpost. Do we know where this is? Do we know where... Has this been established before? So, um, Carson Tampa's stationed in a place called Adelphi. Um, and they're the Adelphi Rangers. He mentions that in the episode. Oh, okay. I missed that. I think that was also mentioned earlier in the season too yeah yeah um and this this whole environment reminds me of the uh of just the the officers club in mash but star wars oh it's remind it, it reminded me of that um that bar from top gun <laughs> i like uh, mash better you like mash better <laughs> or yeah, no, it's fine have you seen all for all but, mankind? There was like the this uh, bar that they would all commiserate in. I feel like I, it, it's kind of. But I think the Dave Filoni cameo le- lends more credence to the Mash thing, just because his name is Trapper uh, Trapper Wolf, oh, okay. which is a reference to Trapper John. What were you gonna say, Brad? Oh no, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Um, yeah. So the, it, it, if you missed it, Dave Filoni, Rick Famuyiwa. And Deborah Chow reprised the roles as, uh, you know, pilots in the New Republic at this bar. It's actually kind of, they're kind of not obvious in the scene. Uh, so I think people probably might miss it because they're kind of blurry and in the foreground. But uh, cool to see. And uh, a cameo that you might have missed, not a cameo, but like a, a returning Mandalorian actor that you might have missed. Uh, there was a snaggletooth bartender that serves Carson Tiva, and that bartender is played by Misty Rojas, uh, who played the uh, Quill in season one, Frog Lady in season two, and she played one of the pirates in this season, and now she's the bartender. So she's a... Uh, 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 what, what's the word I'm looking for? She's a... A little person? No. What? <laughs> no, no, I was going to say... Uh, a jack of all trades? Jack of, yes, that's the words I was looking for, Brian. Oh, is, like, she not, is she not a little person? Because it no, seems she like definitely it. Is, she definitely is a little person, but that wasn't the words I was looking for. Oh, I just, I just wasn't sure if you knew of like the, the proper like way to reference No, that. no, no. I was just saying she was a, a, dra- a jack of all trades. That's what I was looking for. You can feel free to take that part out if you want to. <laughs> I think it's funny. I think it's funny. Uh, okay, uh... Tiva receives a message from Grief Karga requesting help. And the message was sent via disk transmission, which got me thinking, how do hollow messages work? Because sometimes we see two-way live communication. And sometimes we see it's a recorded one-way message, like, uh, you know, the message that uh, Princess Leia records to R2 and New Hope. I, I know Brian is going to say that the answer is that whatever the story needs is how they do it. But uh, Brian, I wanted to ask you, what is there actual logic 
how in the Star Wars galaxy things work about like two-way tra- transmissions versus one-way transmissions. So there are, um, and if you're reading the High Republic, the High Republic really kind of gets into that a lot where there's these communications buoys um, that you can shoot down and disrupt communications of places. It gets better over the years, but the further out into the Outer Rim you get the more difficult it is to get those messages out. If you remember in Phantom Menace, Maul uh, had C.O. Bibble send that message out, and it was just one of those recorded messages just to find a connection trace. And that's because he doesn't know where the object of the message is going to go. So they just blast it everywhere, and they can pull that frequency down. And then when they finally do watch the message, then they can trace them. You know what I mean? So... There is a certain logic to the way they do some of those broadcasted one-way transmissions, the two-way transmissions, uh, which are probably more expensive, and then messages like this that are more rare and direct if you've got some way to get that out there. Yeah. I was just like wondering, what, why doesn't Grief Karga just like phone him and get like access to him immediately? Why in this if- situation... Maybe the pirates had destroyed the communications buoys. Maybe they're blocking signals. That's something that's pretty normal for uh, pirates to do. You know what I mean? For sure. Okay, so uh, holy crap, guys. Zeb from Star Wars Rebels sits down next to him. I got to admit, at first I was like, oh, look, it's a Lasat. Like uh, Zeb from Star Wars Rebels. And then he started talking. I was like, wait, is that Steve Blum? Is, is, Is that Zeb? Uh, I wanted to get what, you, what your reaction was to that. Brian. Mine yeah. was actually exactly yours. Like, ooh, a Lasat. Wait, is that Steve Bloom? No, that can't be Zeb. <laughs> uh, I guess it's Zeb. Brad, what was your reaction? Yeah, exactly the same. I was like, oh, cool. They just brought one of these things in here, and you know, now now we'll have the the species officially brought into live action, and then you know, maybe we'll get Zeb in the future. And then it's like, oh crap, that's actually him. <laughs> So do you think this is just a fun cameo or do you think this is a setup? It seems clear to me that like if we were going to get the Rangers of the New Republic, that maybe Zeb would have been involved in that show. I think that's safe to say. And I also think that like uh, this means that he's got to be making an appearance, you know, likely in the Ahsoka series, because like you're not going to do a character like this, which is clearly, you know, an expensive endeavor. Uh, and just use him for like this quick appearance that is not really significant. So like they're definitely gonna have to bring him back in some capacity. Yeah, that's something that's that's really uh, the Dave Filoni and his team in the animated world really leaned on that whole thing where it's like let's pay to build the assets that are gonna save us money down the road so we can use them a ton. And this Zeb is so complicated. I can't imagine them going like, you know, we should blow a whole bunch of money on Zeb right here. Cause why would they like, they would just, if they wanted a cameo, they'd make a cameo, but Zeb is here for a reason. I'm assuming. I also, so what do you guys think about how he's created to me? I think that he's mostly practical with a CG enhanced face. That's what I think too. I don't know anything. Yeah, I don't know for sure, I, but but to me, the texture of of like the beard and like the rest of the body and everything around the moving parts of his face looked way too realistic to feel like it was a completely CG character. But I think that they did use visual effects to like smooth out well, what was probably a, like a practical uh, face creation. 
I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was all CG too. You know, that, that also brings up another thing. It's like maybe not only were they putting him in here for budgetary reasons of being able to like, uh, you know, develop this character to see how he would look uh, before they do Ahsoka, but maybe like they needed to try that out. Maybe they were like, not sure, like, oh, what would work? CG, you know, live action uh, prosthetic augmented with CG and like being able to do it here before they get unset for Ahsoka means that they have more figured out before they they actually started filming Ahsoka. I think the, I think I think that's all pretty logical. I think the bigger question for me is less how they did it and like why Zeb is there in that position at this point in the timeline. You yeah. know what I mean? Is this before or after the epilogue in Rebels? Did he just decide like, well, I'm just going to join the New Republic? Like he's in a pretty straight up like New Republic fighter uh, uniform. Uh, much like we'd see Poe Dameron in in the first season of Resistance when he was still sort of moonlighting between the two, the Resistance and the New Republic military. Or no, that Kaz was wearing when Kaz was in the New Republic military. Um, so why would he have made this jump into the New Republic? I don't know. And since we have so many confirmed Rebels characters in in Ahsoka, why wouldn't he be there now? Yeah. And he's also wearing blue, which I don't think is... Have we seen the blue color, the jumpsuit before? Not in live action. Like I said, Kaz in the Resistance War One, all of the New Republic officers on Star Wars Resistance, uh, all the, the New Republic pilots wore the blue. And I think that's why they call him... That's why they call Carson Tiva Blue Boy, is because those are the New Republic colors. Wasn't there a, a blue pilot suit in Rogue One? Yes. Uh, General Antok Merrick wore a blue suit. And he was Blue Squadron, though. So it was just... that Ryan, was how, they how were... do you pull out that name out of out of nowhere? He got an action figure. Um, I don't know <laughs> if I have a... I, maybe I have a General Merrick action figure, but oh like, no, I didn't. His... I didn't mean. I didn't mean that you had the action figure. I just meant <laughs> oh. like he's been given an action figure, so like the name is probably like a little more prevalent out there. Um, I but was still. just obsessed with him in early viewings of Rogue One because he was just such a cool like side character. Like he's got a great mustache he, too. Yeah, he had a great mustache, a great smile, and and his sacrifice hit hard. <laughs> I'm just amazed that you were able to pull that out without looking it up or or anything. This okay. is why you have me here, though. <laughs> yes. So Tiva uh, wants to forward the message to Coruscant, but Zeb says they haven't returned to dispatch in weeks. And, uh, you know, what's going on at the Capitol? I know Zeb says that they're swamped, although when he shows up there later, it didn't look like they were that swamped, but uh, whatever. Uh, so I, reminder, I was going to ask you, Coruscant's I wonder. not the Capitol. Uh, what is the capital? Shandrilla, Mon Mothma's homeworld. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, sorry, not the capital. Yes. Um, so I guess uh, what I'm asking here is I wonder if anything big is going on or if they just have their hands full trying to restore peace and God. Like, what do you think is going on that, like, they're so behind on everything? I think the episode with Dr. Pershing kind of gave us a window into that in, in that 
there's two things going on. There's the fact that they're still disassembling all of the Imperial stuff and having to catalog it all and the Empire was vast, but also the fact that they are they've already begun disassembling the Alliance fleet. Yeah. Right? So like if you imagine the the New Republic at a hundred percent could maybe keep up with all of this stuff, but they draw that down to ten percent of that size, they're gonna have a really difficult time keeping up with all of that. Makes sense. So uh, Tava says they can't ignore him in person, so he's going to go to the Capitol and request that they intervene. And he goes there, he enters this Art Deco building. Have we seen this building before, Brian? Um, If we have, it would have been in um, the last episode where we went to Coruscant. I didn't recognize it right off the bat. So Tava meets with Colonel Tuttle. Which... uh, with as much Brazil as they've been going hard on in the in these Coruscant episodes, I can't imagine that's a not a Brazil reference. But he's played by an SNL legend, and on this podcast we have a, a big fan of SNL. So, Brad, tell us about this this actor, Tim Meadows. Uh, he was a cast member who was uh, mostly prominent in the the nineties. Uh, probably best known for playing the ladies' man, which was a character that also got his own movie. Uh, and he's been a longtime uh, character actor. He's appeared in stuff like uh, Mean Girls. He's also pretty close with Andy Samberg and the Lonely Island crew. So you've seen him in uh, things like Popstar. He was also in Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. He's he's been all over the place. He's a he's a fun actor. Seems like a weird choice to play this kind of like straight laced New Republic character. Though. Yeah, I think that just like I don't know if it's Favreau or Filoni or if it's the the their casting director, but like somebody has a proclivity for casting comedians in these supporting roles because uh we have amy sedaris we've had horatio sands we've had bill burr um we've, we've just had like an interesting assembly of comedians come into the star wars universe in these in these bit parts i think that's favreau if you look back at his like even feature films he did that a, a bunch ca- casting like weird uh I, I wonder how much of it is um production sort of limitations as well because they're shooting in la and it's like, who could we get for cheap to come in for a day? And the comedian set tends to stick around L.A. or New York, right? Mm. Um, whereas a lot of the actors you'd normally, you know, like they're not doing this on Andor, but they're shooting Andor in London. So you get that group of, you know, British actors that are on Game of Thrones and Chernobyl and stuff like that. I mean, that's like, true as well. Is, because of where the the geography of where they're shooting it, this is just the pool of people they have around to come and be a day player. But I have a feeling that this is going to be more than a day player. I feel like we're going to see more of this character in the future. As I, I hope so. Yeah, because Tuttle watches five seconds of that message. He's got the gist of it. <laughs> it's so funny. It, it's like so important. Like there's like planet is being destroyed, and he's like, oh, I got the gist of it. Um. And then they're interrupted by MSD officer G68, who is the former Imperial that set up Pershing a couple of episodes ago. Uh, she says that Navarro is not a member planet of the New Republic, and Tuttle says that they have a backlog of member planet requests to get through before they could get to that. So Tiva thinks that Gideon and the uh, Imperial Resurgence might be connected to this pirate trying to take over Navarro. And Tuttle thinks it's a, a big leap to me, make. So I wanted to ask you guys, uh, Brad, what do you think? Do you think there is something connected to he, here of like them 
that the Gorian Shard trying to take over Navarro and it being related to Gideon or possibly Thrawn or anything we've speculated before? I don't think that it's necessarily as nefarious as like everything being connected, but I think that he'll be proven right inadvertently probably because what's happening on Navarro is tied to the Mandalorians and uh, the Mandalorians have ties to what's going on with, with Moff Gideon. And so like there's, I think maybe it's more indirect than, than completely direct. But then again, the very end of this episode would seem to imply that maybe there is something uh, more, you know, there than meets the eye. So he could end up being more right. But currently I don't think that there's necessarily uh, any evidence of it. So, but we'll probably find out more about that in the next episode. Hey, 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 hey. Well, G68 suggests that we should let Navarro suffer and force them to become signatories. Uh, this leads to a heated discussion between Tiva and G68. Brian, I, I have a feeling you have some thoughts on this whole. I she's the she's this character this season so far that I just love to hate. After she <laughs> sold out Pershing and then walked in in that smug arrogance, like, well, maybe they need to learn. Like, she's obviously like with the way they shot her watching Tiva come in, there was recognition there. She knew where his district was and she knew that that was where Gideon was operating. That I think they're just really playing up the fact that she's pulling whatever strings she can on Coruscant and wherever else um, to enact Gideon's wishes. And it's, it's, it is gross. It's gross in the best ways. Yeah, I like what they're doing with these series of of kind of showing how the New Republic weren't the, you know, even though they were obviously much better than the Empire, like they're repeating a lot of the same mistakes. They're like, oh, no, I mean, it also is that they don't have as many people to be able to to handle what, you know, these new responsibilities. But it's just it's just interesting that like she could say that and that could be like, oh, yeah, yeah, they, they, they should join you know, it, it, it's that the, that the line of thinking that was the Empire could be the line of thinking that is now the New Republic. Of they need to learn the lesson. So, um, okay, so Tiva thinks something is going on, and when it becomes big enough for them to act, it'll be too late. Uh, do you think uh, we're we're supposed to think that this is the the rise of the First Order? Or something smaller no. than that. No, I, I think that uh, the first order is off in the unknown regions, and I'm not sure Gideon or Thrawn have anything to do with them. You don't think you it'll eventually I mean? tie together? I think it could. Um, I think there's definitely. I think there's more stuff that's tying into the first order on Bad Batch than there is here on Mandalorian. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, oh, one thing I, I forgot to ask when Zeb showed up is it's interesting that some of these actors from the animated shows that they bring into live action are reprising their role, like the voice actors are reprising their roles. And then others are completely recast, like Rosario Dawson as Ahsoka. Uh, so I wanted to hear you guys, your guys' thoughts. Like, you know, why do you think that is? Well, I think in the case of Zeb, it's not a character where you're seeing the actor's face. So it doesn't matter whether or not they're uh, a name of note. But when it comes to a character like Ahsoka, whose face you can very clearly see, Rosario Dawson is a much better uh, known name, you know, than than, um, 
uh, sorry, I forget the name of the actress who voices uh, Ashley Eckstein. Ashley Eckstein, yeah. Um, and so, like, even though Ashley Eckstein is, you know, you know, uh, always going to be linked to uh, Ahsoka and like that, you know, the big character that she she originated and that kind of thing, you know, she's not necessarily famous to general audiences who aren't familiar with Clone Wars uh, and Star Wars Rebels. So, bringing in somebody to, to play that character and put a famous face alongside it probably makes it a little bit more appealing to general audiences. Whereas when it's an alien character whose face you don't see, it doesn't really matter to them. I think I think um, Filoni has talked about too where you need to sort of put aside. Well, at least when he was talking about this on the panel for uh, the Ahsoka show or the Lucasfilm spotlight at Celebration last year, about how he really needed to cast the people that were right for the role and would be able to give him what he needed in the moment on camera. And to 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 Brad's point, yeah, like Zeb. It, there's going to be performers there or a tennis ball, you know, or whatever. And Steve Bloom can very much be the voice. Um, but with Ahsoka, yeah, you need someone who can actually act the part in that way. And not to say that I, I think Ashley Eckstein couldn't do that, but they did very much code Ahsoka as much more ethnic than Ashley Eckstein is capable of. Or in the case of Sabine, I don't, I you know, I think Tia Sirkar could have probably done that. Why they chose, uh, they didn't choose her and they chose Bo-Katan and Katie Sackhoff. I couldn't tell you other than it seems like there's something in the casting process that they liked about these people that they, maybe they didn't find in the others. Um, but Filoni says that it, or at least he said last year, if my memory serves, just that it was a matter of, doing what was right for the project rather than just keeping uh, the roles consistent with the actors in media that they didn't start in. Yeah. And also um, who else have they, uh, Hera would probably be. Yeah. I don't know if they, they haven't announced who's, who's recaster. I know. um, I don't think it's Vanessa though. Uh, Vanessa Marshall. Um, At least she seems to have sort of, uh, isn't rumor that it's um oh that it was that it's Ewan McGregor's wife Mary Elizabeth oh. Winstead yes yeah. yes yeah so uh, I I mean I could totally see that but yeah it, it's interesting who they decided to recast and who they didn't um, I guess the only face character that hasn't been recasted was was Bo-Katan right. Everybody else that was like a face character that wasn't like a ma- under a mask or animated was. Yeah, I mean, was, I think so. Yeah. So uh, maybe Katie was just too perfect. I mean, I th- I think she's perfect for that role. So in live action and animated. Uh, okay. Anyways, uh, back to this cargo walks to the Navarro survi- survivors to the lava flats for refuge. And it looks like there's. Only a fraction of the population of Navarro has survived, although it was a small population anyways, but it seems like a lot less. Um, Well, I think that was a matter of extras. Yeah. (laughs) Did did this give either of you that that Lord of the Rings vibe where where uh, Theoden is walking everybody to Helm's Deep? Yes, I I could see that. Um, There's been a lot of Lord Lord of the Rings comparisons this season. Yeah, that was that was kind of what I was thinking. (laughs) So Tiva found the Mandalorian co- covert cave and the Mandalorians are not happy 
that they have been found. Turns out that R5D4s help them find the hidden location. Now, at first I thought this was a possible plot hole. So I wanted to run this by you guys. So R5D4 was the droid that the Jawas almost sold to Luke Skywalker and the Lars family in A New Hope. But as you might remember, he had a bad motivator and that led R2-D2 and C-3PO to go home with Luke instead, which led to the Star Wars trilogy that we know and love. Uh, Then we saw him uh, in season one of The Mandalorian. Uh, Mandalorian uh, finds R5-D4 working in the Mos Eisley Cantina, which... To me, insinuated that he, uh, you know, R five D four has been on Tatooine since we uh, last saw him in uh, A New Hope. He's now found himself in the cantina. You know, someone he probably got told by the Jawas, and now he ended up there. Uh, that's an assumption. That's my, you know, whatever. So, my question to you guys is: When did R five help with the rebellion? Because apparently, Pelimoto made a comment about R5 being a rebellion fighter earlier in the season, but it doesn't seem like there's any canon uh, evidence to show that R5 was, I mean, there is canon because it's, it's said in this series, obviously, but like wh- the only thing I can think of is maybe R5 was involved in the rebellion before a new hope. And then the, the Jawa scavenged him. So, the rebellion did exist on Tatooine, though, right after after the Empire shows up in A New Hope. They don't go away for the next three or four years. They just stayed on Tatooine. Yeah, they hmm. left a garrison there, um, because the Empire just continues its reach everywhere. The other thing is, is like that three or four years is a long time, and maybe a pilot you know, picks R5 up, drops him back off, um, you know, anything, any, anything could have happened in those four or five unaccounted for years. Brad, do you have any thoughts on this? Do you think, do you think R5 was involved in a rebellion during the Star Wars trilogy before the original Star Wars trilogy? Brian, did you know, do you know R5-D4's name? R5-D4? Apparently there was this this story, this comic book story in 1999. Skippy the Jedi Jedi robot. Uh, Skippy the Jedi droid. You're close enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, No, that that was in Star Wars Tales magazine. I want to say issue four or five. One. One. Oh, issue one. Okay. That was a terrific story. Yeah. So he was Skippy. Or actually, maybe you you tell the story. What, What was the story? So... The it was it was just a quick story, but it was about Skippy had access to the Force and could see the future. And as the Jawas were selling him to Luke Skywalker, he saw a vision of what the future of the galaxy would be like if he went with Luke. And it ended in just the absolute terror and utter reign of destruction of the Empire taking over everything. And <laughs> it was awful. And then he saw a vision of the future if R2 went with him. And Luke went on his journey and saved the galaxy. So Skippy, the Jedi droid, blew his own motivator in order to make sure that R2-D2 went with Luke to set the galaxy's path correctly. Wow. What a hero. Yeah. Brad, do you believe that droids can have Jedi powers? No. <laughs> well, there's also... <laughs> there was a, no- 
What were you going to say? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say there's that great Visions short where a droid wishes to be a Jedi and sort of taps into that. That's yeah. true. There's also um, uh, Ray Carlson's uh, short story, The Red One, which is part of uh, From a Certain Point of View, which uh, R2-D2 still attempts to sabotage R5-D4, but rewents when the droid wakes up and R2-D2 instead convinces R5-D4 that the fate of the galaxy depends on him to be sold. After R2-D2 mentions he is fighting for the rebellion, R5 decides to sacrifice his own opportunity to be so, and being sold in order to guarantee the success of R2-D2's mission, which leads me to believe, because this is canon, this is part of the new Disney canon, Well, leads me to believe maybe he was part of is, Yeah, but maybe he was part of the... It's questionable. It's questionable, but yeah, it's from a certain point of view. But, but maybe he heard oh it's for the rebellion and maybe he previously worked for the rebellion and maybe that's why he uh you know faked the bad motivator so that too many maybes in that sentence Eh, okay (laughs) anyways uh i i still think it's questionable about when r5 actually was part of the rebellion because it doesn't make much sense to me but there's just so much time there where anything could happen and he could leave tatooine and come back it just it's, seems it's wide open. It's wide open, yes. It could happen, yes. But it's one of those things that I feel like it makes the universe, the galaxy, smaller to have him part of the rebellion. But sure, okay. Uh, so Din tries to convince the clan of Mandalorians to help rescue Navarro, and he makes the pitch that if they do, Karga has offered some attractive land on their planet, and then Paz Vizla makes his speech and I love how uh, the Mandalorian have to like hold the hammer of the armor to have like the stage. And uh, you wrote an article about that. I uh, did. There's of. a, there's a long history of talking sticks and ceremonial weapons that, that denote the right to speak um, in the Pacific Northwest. The indigenous tribes uh, have done this, for a long time, the first examples of these uh, ceremonial maces and talking sticks date back to, you know, uh, uh, the Stone Age, actually. And, uh, you know, we actually have in the United States a ceremonial mace. Um, the U.S. House of Representatives is unable to conduct business without the mace of the House of Representatives present there as a show of force and decorum from the speaker of the house and the sergeant at arms. And it's, it's funny because they use it in the opposite way where like, as long as it's there, everybody can speak. But if somebody gets out of line, then they have to present the mace to them. And that's been, that's been interesting. And this isn't our first mace either in the U S the British came. I don't know if you remember the war of 1812, but they sacked the Capitol and broke our ceremonial mace and we were very upset about that. So the one we have now is our replacement after the British ruined ours. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, I was going to say replacement <laughs> mace. Like, no, no, it's almost like if you like, if the dark saber was destroyed and they're like, we're going to make a replacement dark saber and everybody's going to like follow the leader that has the dark. Sa- I don't know. It seems weird. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens. I, I mean, um, in the UK, they've had 12 of them, and they have three currently that they use. And the House of Commons in the UK cannot conduct business unless they have on the table the ceremonial mace that they have that dates back to the reign of Charles II. 
So it's yeah. just like, and they've got 12 of them. So if this one broke, they'd go back to one of the other ones or make a new one. It's just, it's ceremony. Yeah. Okay. Paz Vizsla uh, makes the case, which we think is going to go one way, but actually please uh, Din's case. And uh, this is the way the Mandalorians make their way to Navarro, which is now in ruins and under the control of the pirate thugs. All of them are like drinking spotchka. My favorite shot is this poor red astromech who keeps who is damaged so much that he keeps on bumping into a slab of concrete. Kind of reminds me of like a broken Roomba or something. Just <laughs> the concrete's there. Um, Mandalorian's N1 starfighter attacks Shard's ship, and he responds by sending out um, some of the pirates on in, in smaller ships, and uh, they they have that great scene which. Brad brought up of the turret pods, some really cool design. Uh, I guess since there's a lot of action here and we'll break down some of it, but uh, Brad, what are your thoughts on this whole sequence at, at large? It's just, it's just solid star Wars action. You know, I, I love the pirate influence. Um, you know, seeing that N one starfighter cruise around is that that's such a cool ship. I think that's one of my favorite ships uh, in recent star Wars memory. It's just, you know, taking something old, you know, giving it a, a cool kind of like hot rod uh, makeover. And it's just, yeah, it's a great way of using Star Wars history and re- refining it in a cool way for this this new character. Um, but yeah, just just a great collection of action sequences here. You know, we've got the dog fighting in the air. We've got the fight on the ground between the Mandalorians and all the pirates. And it's just it's just good stuff. Yeah, just so well put together. All three things are happening at the same time. I also like the juxtaposition of the big uh, of uh shards huge hunking ship that's like sluggish and slow and then you have the dog fighting like smaller ships and uh like to each have an advantage and disadvantage brian what, what are your thoughts on this whole sequence i really liked it i felt like there was a lot of i don't know maybe you two don't have the connection to attack of the clones that i did but in Attack of the Clones, there's that like, fuck, yes, like when the Jedi start igniting their sabers around the arena. And I got that same vibe when the Mandalorians just start descending and kicking ass. And then in the sky, Vane can't keep track of them. And he's like, he's above you. No, he's below you. No, he's above you again. Like they just keep losing them. And like the Mandalorians are just kicking ass the way you would expect Mandalorians to based on the history and sort of the legends and, and the, the reputation that they have in the stories. And it's just like, it makes you, it pumps you up because it's so just cool. And then when the armor shows up, chef's kiss. (laughs) I also love that moment where the Amanda lures the pirates to crash into each other. That was great. Uh, so everybody's chasing Mando. Bo-Katan drops the clan above the city, and they jetpack down. Uh, they take off the pirates. Uh, my favorite part of this, and actually this whole sequence, is like the cutaways of the Anzellans watching on from their little shop window or door or whatever it is. It all happens just like spectating and like laughing and cheering on. Uh, Mando uh, leads the pirates out to the flats while Bo-Katan bombs the huge pirate ship and uh yeah i, I love how the hellish quacking monkey lizards even hate the pirates so much that they're willing to give them up to the mandalorian drop team this is this is one of those moments that's like really foundational in fairy tales and i mean it goes back to like 
the George Lucas. I, I don't know how much you guys watched that that from Star Wars to Jedi documentary, but there's a moment in it where George Lucas is explaining to Richard Marquand and Luke Skywalker that like it's so important that they meet the Ewoks on their terms because it's this classic fairy tale idea where it's the magic bunny on the side of the road that you're nice to that gives you the information you need to defeat the evil witch down the road. And you watch the treatment of the Kowakian monkey lizards in the first episodes, and they're literally like captured, sold as food run up on spits. And then when we see Navarro again at the beginning of this season, they're happy, they're left alone and they're treated nicely and the pirates are start shooting at them. So, so they fill in that sort of mythical idea. And I'm realizing I've taken this on a way ridiculous (laughs) detour for something that's such a throwaway moment, but it's so foundationally star Wars that it feels right. If that makes sense. No, it, it definitely makes sense. Uh, you know, there's a moment where the Mandalorians find themselves pinned in a corner, taking fire from all sides. The armor uses her forging tools to take out the pirate station in the magistrate office. And then you have, uh, the Mandalorians advance and they're able to take back the city. And a few of the pirates try to escape and they're met with returning citizens led by Karga. And my one criticism, if I have any criticism of this whole action sequence, it is that the Navarro people kind of like could have participated more. They were kind of like the helpless people out in the desert and they just showed up at the very end to like scare off the, the scragglers from trying to escape. But um, it's no big deal. Um, Sometimes sometime you need helpless people to, to fight for, if that makes sense. Not everybody needs to be a hero. Um, one of my favorite shots is one of the Mandalorians surfing on the back of one of those pirate ships before jet packing off it before it crashes to the ground. And uh, Vane decides to abandon Shard as it all seems to be all seems to be lost. Shard takes the helm and takes a last stand. And but no, Mando takes out the ship's last remaining engine, and the ship dives into the lava hell behind the city and. Just this cool-looking explosion, which uh, apparently is far enough away that it doesn't cause any destruction in the city center. But whatever. Of course. Yeah. Uh, everyone celebrates, but most importantly, the Enzelans celebrate. And <laughs> Grief Karga uh, makes a uh, speech offering the Mandalorian all the land from the western lava flats to the Bullock Canyon to the people of Mandalore, you may no longer have your home planet, but you have you now have a home. And Brian, you brought up a, a fun, cool little Easter egg here. Yeah, Bullock Canyon seems to be named after Jeremy Bullock, who originated the role of Boba Fett in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. He's one of the nicest guys in the world, if ever you met him on the con circuit. And he passed away in 2020. Um and uh, I'm sure he would have uh, been touched by this little uh, in-universe nod to him. Very cool. Um, okay, so the armor requests presence with Bo-Katan in the former Mandalorian co- covert beneath the sewers of the city. And the armor reminisces about the Great Forge on Mandalore, which was huge, and apparently you could hear the sound of a hundred hammers 
I wonder if we'll ever get to see this on Mandalore. Maybe we'll see. Uh, the armor makes the forges. Uh, it makes an analogy about the forges, of difference of uh, how they're very different, but in the end, it's the same purpose. And she asks Bo to remove her helmets. Brad, what did you think was going on when when this moment came? Because I was like very confused. Yeah, I initially I thought that. Uh the armor was trying to pull one over on Bo-Katan and like trying to trick her into removing her helmet and being like, Nope, you're banished. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> That's what I thought too. That's where I was on that. Like, I, I think that that was a really, really well conceived rug pull. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Uh, so the armor says that the Mandalorian people have stayed straight away from the way and that all Mandalorians must walk the way together uh, this is, I don't know, this is like a rug pull in many senses because I think we were all on the same page that we thought that this sect of Mandalorians were going to be revealed to be kind of a cult and we were going to learn that the way was not actually the way. Like, we, we've talked about that in the past, like, but it seems like that's not the case. It seems like the, the cult is doing a face turn here. Yeah, I was very surprised to hear the armorer come to Bo-Katan and say that, like, she's the one that needs to unite both sects of Mandalore as opposed to being, you know, combative and confrontational, trying to stop her from changing their ways. Well, I think part of it ex- is exposure, right? Like, this is something that happens when any religious sect actually starts accepting outside ideas and people from around, like they start liberalizing their views. Right. Um, and so them like Din being an example of like, I've been exposed. I've seen all these people. I've seen all these different types of Mandalorians and here's one of them and I'm bringing her to you and they get to know her. And she is more adamant. Like what Paz Vizsla says, like Bo-Katan didn't give up on my son when the rest of us did. Um, so I think that they're seeing the proof is in the pudding and that even if she takes her helmet off, she has the spirit of a Mandalorian and it's changed their minds. Just that exposure, that pluralism that they're experiencing. So, uh, the armorer now believes that Bo-Katan has seen the mythosaur and believes it's a sign that the next age is upon us and that the Mandalorian must come together. Uh, since Bo has walked both worlds, she believes that she will be the one to reunite them. To unite them, there's a couple things here. This is weird because I feel like last week when we were talking about this and when Bo-Katan brought up the Mythosaur to the armor, we were all kind of on the same page. Of it didn't seem like the armor was like believed it. Like there was even these memes online, like the meme of like the sure grandma meme, where like uh, <laughs> they they put the text over the, the the woman helping her grandma, being like, "I saw a mythosaur," or whatever, and it's like, "Sure, grandma," or, or other way around. But you know what I'm saying. So, what do you think has changed since when last week when she told her, and now because it, it didn't seem like she had much reaction then. I think time passing has helped for sure. I I don't know. Like I I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong or misremembering, but I felt like. I had read that as though it could be either way when we talked about it last week. You did, week. you did, yeah. And I think, you know, we figured it out. 
now we it's been revealed how she really really took that why wouldn't she take bokatan's word for it and i imagine it has a lot to do with the fact that bokatan again right she's the one making the plans she's the one actually doing the leading the armorer didn't come up with the plan it's very carefully bokatan who's doing that right when they when they take back navarro and it works and they don't really lose anybody right yeah no i i i accept all of that i think i think this is one of the rare exceptions in this show where the mask being over the actress's face maybe created confusion in how we're accepting what what she felt in that moment if that makes sense i feel like it was hard to relay a reaction to it yeah which just goes to prove the point that uh, maybe they should take their masks off more often <laughs> uh do you think now that some of these mandalorians are allowed to remove their helmet that this will lead the way for even part of the sect of mandalorians to, to remove their helmets i don't know i i mean like Maybe that's a bridge too far for some of them. Some of these people, like Paz Vizla, I doubt he would choose that. I doubt Din Djarin would choose that, right? Yeah. Like, I think, but I, I feel like they're going to find ways where they can do that more and feel a little bit more loose with it than needing to go back to Mandalore and bathe in, bathe in the living waters. Or maybe she's just counting on the fact that, like, oh, we'll just... We'll take our helmets off. We'll take a break for a day. We'll go bathe in the living waters. It's all good because they're going to take back Mandalore. I will say if they change the rule I, and I was Mando, I'd be pissed. Cause I'd be like, I went all the way to Mandalore. I risked my life to bathe in those waters. And now you're changing the rule. I could have just like <laughs> stayed away from them. I don't know. Anyways. Uh, so the armor walks Bo-Katan out without her helmet on. And everybody's like WTF. And she explains that, uh, Bo will bring more exiled Mandalorians back. At first, Paz Vizsla questions it, but Bo, especially her not wearing the helmet, but seems to easily accept the explanation. Uh, it's a really powerful moment. I kind of felt like this was going to be the end of the episode because it kind of like the music kind of built in a way. I almost think that this probably was the original end of the episode and then they moved this, this other thing further back forward or back what what do you guys think i i think the sting the 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 question raised by the end of this is a stronger question than than is what is raised by the bokatan story so i kind of feel like i did feel that same way but i felt like that was a purposeful cut to black wait wait there's one more scene right like i felt like that was very purposeful rather than moved from elsewhere yeah it almost felt like it was an end credit scene or something uh so the the scene i'm talking about is uh tiva discovering an abandoned attacked lambda class shuttle out in space he radi- radios to lieutenant reed we've actually seen lieutenant reed before in the book of boba fett he's a lieutenant in the new republic and he's played by max lloyd jones who reprises his role here he, uh, who is also the person who played uh, luke skywalker in the finale of last season. So uh, there, there's uh, a record of a missing craft in the region, but the details are classified. He launches a probe into the wreckage, and it's confirmed to be the New Republic prison transport, transporting Moff Gideon 
Uh, he never made it to trial, turns out. Uh, everything's been confirmed here. Uh, when trying to find out who perpetrated this prison break, the probe finds a fragment of Beskar alloy in the side of the ship. And the Lieutenant Reed asks if this means the Mandalorian broke him out. Cut to black. And there's uh, some questions here. Uh, actually, before we get into the questions and speculation, uh, Brad, what did you think of this final scene? It's intriguing. Um, I'm not necessarily sure if I buy that it's real or if it's something that has been set up to be discovered so that Gideon can stop the various sects of Mandalorians from uniting and reclaiming Mandalore, which is something I'm sure he would be very happy to stop and avoid having to deal with. Um, but then I also do wonder if there is, you know, another team of Mandalorians out there who have maybe, you know, gone, gone rogue and taken a darker path and are working with the empire now, you know, who, who knows that's, uh, you know, survival, uh, in the galaxy can be, you know, uh, a big, you know, struggle and, you know, maybe some Mandalorians are just doing what they have to, to get by. So before we hear from Brian and myself, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay. We're back. We're into speculation. Brian, I think you have something to say with this. Uh, what does the Beskar alloy mean? Were the Mandalorians involved? So I think I think Brad's theory is actually a really solid theory that this is Moff Gideon possibly just trying to sow discord among things. But there's also another possibility in that. Well, there's two other possibilities that could make very interesting narrative sense. One is that and this is, I think, the less likely version, is that Bo-Katan's Mandos that took off to be mercenaries after she didn't get the Darksaber back got paid to do this. Um, and I think that that's a, a, a logical possibility tying some of these threads together. The other thing is that there is an entire group of Mandalorians uh, that were those Imperial Super Commandos uh, that were loyal to the Empire. And they did not care for any of the other sects and they cared about what the empire was doing and how they were working with them for greater power. Uh, Gar Saxon and his, um, you know, cadres of people, his, his troops and the people loyal to him uh, were deposed by Bo-Katan. And so there is another competing sect or a number of sects out there trying to uh, subvert Bo-Katan and, and that unification in other ways. And it could be them. And I, I could very easily see them continuing to be in league with Moff Gideon. For sure. Uh, but also there's also the possibility that there are some Mandalorians out there who want Moff Gideon to answer for the great purge of Mandalore. Yeah, I think that's a possibility too. I don't, I don't think that's what's going to end up. I think it's exactly what Brad's saying that they – are trying to frame the Mandalorians in some way, or maybe they're trying to, maybe, maybe it's both of what you guys said. They're trying to frame the Mandalorians and they used a sect of Mandalorians to do it, to frame them, which I guess doesn't frame them if they're actually the Mandalorians, but you know what I'm saying? They're trying to yeah. frame Din and his sect by using Mandalorians, uh, uh. frame other Mandalorians. My favorite thing about this scene though, was the two, really cool like movie references that it drops. Okay. What, what movie references? So I think there's an element of jaws to it, right? Where, uh, that slice of Beskar is a shark tooth in Ben Garner's boat, right? This is 
it has that look, especially when you have the hole in the ship that the probe is able to go into. It feels very much like the hole that uh, Brody is going into or looking into when Ben Gardner's face pops in there. And there is a little bit of a jump scare, at least on Tava's part, when he's walking, watching on the monitor and sees that body floating there. Um, the other one is Aliens. When he sends the the probe in, uh, the the droid's piece, which is something we haven't seen a droid do before in that way, which was really cool. Uh, it has those blue thin scan lines that match the opening of Alien when Ripley's pod is found by the scavenger team. Oh. And they send their robot, robot in to do those cool scans of the dead ship and they come across Ripley in her hypersleep pod. So I thought it was really cool to see those two things sort of mashed together in a really interesting way that I was that that Leonardo DiCaprio pointing meme the whole time going like, <laughs> oh, this is Jaws. This is Aliens. I loved it. Yeah, it, it, it's almost a very like James Cameron like shot like that. I that mean, whole... it's 100 yeah. percent. Yeah, it's yeah. It, they matched the angle, too. So actually, you see that angle where the the, the scanner swipes the lens the same way James Cameron staged it in Aliens. Okay, so the question here, guys, is who broke Gideon out and what do they want with him? Brad, what are your, what are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, it, it's obviously, you know, a, a remnant of the Empire, um, you know, and I, you know, I'm still of the mind that uh, Thrawn is probably the one who is pulling the strings here. It makes the most sense if we're going to be heading into Ahsoka soon and his name has already been dropped and we know that he's out there. It seems like he's the only villain who could have, you know, the resources to pull off something like this, um, you know, which is a pretty big deal. And I feel, I feel like that's the thing that makes the most sense. And Thrawn is the sort of villain who would plant evidence to get his enemies fighting amongst each other. Yeah. He's always like three chess moves ahead. I just wonder if like, if Thrawn is going to be the big reveal in the finale of this season, which it could very well be. I wonder if general Star Wars audiences that don't watch the animated stuff or read the books, yeah, how that's going to play there's, for them. I feel like there's this saturation of knowledge of Thrawn. You're hard pressed to find a person like I've talked to people who are those very casual Star Wars fans who seem to know Thrawn just because they existed in the 90s. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, but it, I think there's a lot of people too that when Ahsoka mentioned the name of Thrawn in Mando season two, a lot of people started looking into him and they've been sowing the seeds long enough for you to read those six books in the current Canon and watch rebels that by the time we get to him, it's going to make a lot of sense. I think that's one thing that Disney's finding is that people are watching all the, they're going back and watching the animated shows for context in the live action shows. Yeah, but they didn't bother to put on uh, Jedi, uh, the Jedi Chronicles, or wait, what was that? Uh, Jedi, Jedi Challenge. Temple Challenge. Yeah. yeah that's... Well, I wonder if there's a licensing issue there, too, because that was, I, I wonder, like, I feel like it got it's... sponsored specifically for YouTube by, like, it got paid for by an advertiser, I think. Ah. Uh, yeah, and it's not even on the Star Wars YouTube channel. It's on the Star Wars Kids YouTube channel. It's kind of... Uh, yeah. Not easy to find. I mean, it is easy to find. You can go to YouTube and find it, but it's not like, you know, on the main channels. Um, yeah, uh, I agree with that. Um, a, a new 
new home for on Navarro sounds nice, but it seems like they are already uh, like already want to take back Mandalorian. So what was the point of even them getting this new home on on uh, Navarro? I don't know. That's the other funny thing is when she's like, "We're taking back Mandalore," and I'm like, "From who? There's no one there." Ah, there's those mutants there. Well, yeah, okay. but those mutants were always there. Yeah, but now there's more of them, and they're, well, they're, I guess now, and they're feral, and uh, obviously when they were there, that there's, uh, you know, okay. Well, I, actually, here's, here's something actually, I want to bring I'm up. Thinking, Okay, go ahead and bring that up, but I've got to, I, I actually solved my own problem in my head. So go. Oh ahead. no, answer your problem then. Um, I mean, that huge Imperial contingent that blew up Bo-Katan's castle on Kalevala, they're probably assuming that there's something on Mandalore that's worth the, whatever Imperial remnant is there. And where better than to hide that massive Imperial remnant than a planet that everyone thinks is cursed and dead and no one would be visiting on under normal circumstances anyway. That is so maybe, the theory that is going yeah. around online is that the Imperial resurgence is held up they have a base on mandalore because that would explain why the empire lied about the planet's fate how it's inhabitable it's also been established that there's electromagnetic fluctuations that would prevent anything from being detected so i wanted to ask you guys your thoughts on that but you you came to that conclusion by yourself without even reading any internet theories yeah there you go Brad, what do you think of that 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 theory? No, I, I like that actually, and uh, I didn't get get around to it in time. But I was going to mention the fact that they, you know, they were attacked by Tie Fighters shortly after they were on Mandalore, and it's probably standard reason that it's because they were on Mandalore, and the Empire is like, uh, no, get away from here. Mm. Okay, uh, will Bo-Katan unite all the Mandalorians? I feel like they're they're building her up to be the savior. The Book of Boba Fett, the armor said. The songs of eons past were told of the mythosaur rising up to herald the new age of Mandalore. I think it was assumed at that time that Din might be the one to ride the mythosaur, and the or maybe Din was the mythosaur because he has the uh, I don't know. But one, what does this mean? Do do, do you think Bo-Katan is going to be the leader because she, she still seems I don't know is. She 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 tends to uh, not get along with everybody. Can can she uh, keep it together to be the leader? I think she's learning, and I think that that's the point. And I feel like she kind of has to because I don't think Din wants that job, and he seems like the only other person who could do it. You know, it would seem odd if they did this all just to keep the status quo of the armorer leading everybody. So I think that this is what what has to happen. But then then you have the problem that you brought up earlier, Brad that the Mandalorian is becoming a supporting, supporting character in his own show. Unless, unless this is all to place all of these Mandalorians on Mandalore. And then he feels um, dejected because he has to lose or give up the dark saber or whatever, and then goes on his other quest and, and takes off again. And so this is just setting Mandalore up for future storytelling and send him on his way for his next adventure. Yeah. Well, you also bring up the Darksaber. What does this mean for the Darksaber? Because I thought the person that leads Mandalore is the person that has the Darksaber. But what if one person rides the Mythosaur and then there's one person that has the Darksaber and they're two separate people? Who who leads the Mandalorian people? Maybe we'll run into a thing where maybe it'll be the Armor and Bo-Katan who lead you know, the people. 
what uh, I guess we already talked about Zeb and what role we we think he's going to play in the future Mandalorian shows. We just all assume that he's going to be in Ahsoka, right? Yeah, it makes the most yeah. sense. Yeah. Um. Okay. Uh, if Gorian Shard was trying to take over Navarro for something more than just revenge, what do you think that plan was? There was something there on Navarro in that Imperial base that they blew up um, that Moff Gideon might still want. I mean, it was an advanced science division facility. We know that. We saw the cloning canisters and stuff before that stuff was was destroyed. But what if that's not the only installation? Or what if all of that's not completely destroyed? Because it seems like Aaliyah Kane is working really hard to keep everybody's mouth shut about what's going on with Gideon enough to mind flay Dr. Pershing, right? Like it seems like as soon as she saw somebody who had any connection to Navarro, she went in and was trying to divert everybody's attention away from it. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, yeah, what what is G sixty eight doing here? What is her plan? She's obviously she's obviously up to no good in the New Republic. She's working. We we all agree she's working for the Imperial Resurgence, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, yeah. She's she's taking orders from Gideon still. Hmm. What do you think? Uh, so you think that she's just communicating to? She's just like an inside man trying to divert them wherever they don't want them to go kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing. It's actually an inverse of what we're seeing in Andor. Yeah. Right. With, uh, Luthan rails contact inside of the ISB. She's the Imperial counterparts to that inside Republic requisitions. Have, have we seen the last of Vane? No, I think, I think they sent him off to purposely bring him back in some way or another. Do we have any other speculation, any other uh, theories, anything else left to say about this episode? I hope we get, I hope we get more pirate tunes, more pirate tunes. Well, we got the, the main theme in that pirate. I, I just loved how much they leaned into the piracy and the like pirates of the Caribbean pirates, like, giving him the Long John Silver voice, giving yeah. the Ugnot the Mr. Smee costume. Like, I I was just delighted by all of that. Brad, any last thoughts? I, I hope that they have some of these pirates show up in Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> why don't they just remake, instead of trying to do another Pirates of the Caribbean, why not just do Pirates of the Caribbean in Star Wars Universe? Just do Space Pirates of the Caribbean. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay, anyways, you can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, theories, speculation to Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>